0: Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited. Welcome to the Studio Your Yoga Podcast. This is Gabe, your host, and today I'm just so psyched to talk to an incredible human being and an incredible yoga teacher out of Iowa, and he's at the we'll, we'll let him, as you all know, I like to let the guests present themselves. So this is Matthew Coder, and he's going to give us a little bit, just a couple of little words because we're going to get into more details about him. So I want to just let them express themselves in their own words so Matt, just give us a couple of little words because I'm going to ask you questions about your past and what you're doing and all that. But just just to give the crowd a little bit of a taste of your words before I start giving you some fun questions to answer, um, give us a little bit of your taste.
1: Well, first I just want to I want to thank you so much, Gabriel, for inviting me onto your podcast and and for just giving me an opportunity to get a chat with you and, and to connect with your audience. As you know, you know I've really I've taken a lot of inspiration from you and your work over the years. I just, I feel super grateful that we've been able to create this wonderful friendship over the years. And and even though you are traveling the world and and you know doing all these things, I always feel like every time we come back, it's like this. uh, It's like one of those great friends where no matter how much time, how much distance moves between you, you know, you come together and and it feels like no time has passed at all. So, thank you so much for letting me be on here today.
0: Oh, my pleasure, man. It's just an honor for me as well.
1: Besides, so guys, Matthew is an
0: incredible teacher out of Des Moines, and we're gonna get more about what he has. But I like to kind of give the meat of the stuff because the listeners in today's world have a, an attention span that sadly can span for just a few minutes. So we grab the, your attention by asking some of the fun questions upstart, the and then we can bring up some of the other questions to begin. So, Matthew, I'd love to hear from you. You know, I mean, one of my reasons for interviewing mostly male yoga teachers is because we are in an industry of yoga that is dominated by a variety of different um, sexes. However, the female gender is one of the most predominant ones in our classes. And one of the reasons to offer these podcasts to males and interviewing male teachers first is so that we inspire more men to come to classes. But some of the things that I've experienced as a teacher, and I know others have, is that there are challenges that us as male teachers face in the yoga room. And I wonder if you have any of those. What kind of challenges you may have faced in this industry as a male yoga teacher?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges that I that I have faced, and, and I don't know... You know, I, I obviously work in, in the States, you know, in the United States, and so it feels like the, the yoga climate, especially in the United States, as you said. In, Extremely female dominated. And when I first started practicing yoga, that was all I saw was pictures of female teachers and female practitioners. And so I assumed, sort of out of my ignorance, that it was just a type of stretching exercise geared towards women. And so you could imagine, you know, my surprise when I thought that, you know, men exclusively practiced yoga for, you know, thousands of years. And so I, I had my mind really blown when I first came into the practice. And so as as I've tried to share some of the the deeper messages of yoga and the deeper practices of yoga, I think what I'm met with a lot is that people assume that there's no depth to the practice, that that the stretching exercises are just it. And they don't necessarily recognize that the asana practice is just such a small piece of this big, vast world. And even – Even the Asana piece, though, is so much more vast than what people see on the surface anyway. So whenever I meet a lot of men or male practitioners, you know, they often get, you know, off-put by the practice thinking that, um, you know, it's going to be too easy or not strenuous enough or it's for girls. And um, I think there's some apprehension to the practice for men, from my experience, because I don't know if if this is the correct word, but I feel as though they feel that their masculinity will be somehow threatened if they start practicing yoga, that it's going to somehow make them less, you know, less of a man to go in and stretch their muscles or, or perhaps to connect with their their thoughts and emotions in a new way and, and to become vulnerable is going to somehow make them, you know, less strong. And uh, so I see a real avoidance uh, with, with yoga most men, and, and I think... You know, from the other end, too, you know, some of the stigma uh, surrounding, you know, male teachers, as we see. There are a lot of guys, you know, that we know who join the the yoga teaching community for the wrong reasons, too. You know, like they're, you know, they are actually there, you know, to gain the attention of of the women who are in their classes and whatnot. And, and, um, you know, and I'm not saying there's things that are right about that or wrong about that. I think everybody has their motivations for the things that they do, and I'm I'm not going to, uh, you know, judge anybody for their personal reasons, but I do think that sometimes that can muddy the waters from the depths of the practice, and that can cause a lot of confusion surrounding uh, the relationship between gurus and disciples from India and, and how those relationships should should carry out in a modern world in an American setting or in a, or in a Western setting. I haven't traveled the world as much as you have, but maybe you could tell me, is the world westernizing as much as it would appear, you know, from looking stateside outward? Um,
0: Sadly, the answer is yes. And then I'm going to come back to something you said right from the beginning about the fact that, sadly, again, I'm going to have to use that word, that yoga has somehow been limited to this idea of stretching at best and then at just like somehow sitting and chanting Om at worst. And you're right and hitting on the topic of the fact that the male population somehow feels that it's going to be emasculating. As sadly, as I travel the world and even as you go over to India, what you seem to see is the popularity of yoga through the asana practice just because the United States and the West, but really the United States has made yoga so much money, quote-unquote. I mean, there isn't really any money to teach yoga. I hate to say it to those of you who are going to teach a training program, but there the really is <laughs> money. And you really got to be doing it from a passion. And that's what I love about the people I interview because they really teach for the passion of teaching. And some of them we learn do are able to make money from teaching yoga but it has taken years and dedication and a clarity of mind and as you mentioned um sadly yes there there is and i don't want to judge and there's no judgment but i know there's a lot of female listeners and it is important for me to have asked that question so that i can have other teachers present they've experience especially male teachers because you got to take responsibility for the consequences that Absolutely. we put out there on women.
1: Well, you know, and and without, ca- you know, you don't have to cast judgment to recognize that there is such a thing as effective versus ineffective, you know, and we do need discretion. I mean, after all, if I inject drugs in my arm or if I take a protein shake, it's going to give me two different results, you know, and so this idea that just everything is good and that we should just, everybody should just be free to make whatever decisions that they want is, is in many ways the
2: the um opposite.
1: opposite of what I learned you know what I read what yoga revealed to me was that I had these massive undermining patterns of thought and emotion that I didn't even realize were there that were actually governing my decisions more than I realized. You know? And, I do know. Uh, and so I, yeah, I'm gonna stop you for a second I,
0: and I just I'm gonna stop you for a second. I'm just gonna at least recognize the honesty of what you just said that, yes, the practice of yoga brings us to the space of deeper awareness of both the blockages that we have on our thoughts and emotions that we never even realize are there, and then giving us a tool on how to deal with them. And that is, in, for me, especially coming from a world that started with Patanjali Sutras that have not a single yoga pose in them, um, is one of the reasons that I love making these podcasts, because this is a subject that seems to be not one want to talk about. And I tell my No, students, this,
1: not only do they want to talk about it, but it it, it almost feels like it's turned into Voldemort, But see like yes. who shall not be named, you know? Right. It, you know, it feels like, it feels like especially if, if, uh, you come out and, and you start talking about this, because it... What you're doing is is you're tearing down the yoga machine, the money making machine, you know, and the whole machine right now is built on this like interesting castle of sand. It's it's built on a uh, an illusionary veil of you know fake niceties and and compliments and and uh, a unnecessary and undeserved praise, you know, and. When in reality, what I needed to hear when I first started practicing yoga was, "Hey, you know what? Like, you're you're actually, you're not as great as you think you are. You know, you really have some things that you need to address and work on. And that's a difficult thing to come to. You know, it's really hard to have to look at yourself with honesty and to be truthful. Which, which is why I love Patanjali's Yoga Sutra so much. And I want to talk. You just said there too. There's not a there's not a single asana." you know, listed inside of that, that entire beautifully written book, you know, and, and that whole incredible work starts with an, and now yoga, you know, like, you know, if you, if you think sex is going to do it, if you think money is going to do it, if you think, you know, fighting or, or whatever it is, whatever your advice is, whatever your addiction is, as it were, is going to be the thing that fills this hole of incompleteness in you. You know, it's almost like you've got to go out and, find that none of those things are going to work, and then yoga comes into play, and then that's where I really began to understand things like yama and niyama, and and the real necessity of applying yama and niyama to your actual practice, you know, and living, you know, things like truthfulness on a daily basis and and having the the bravery at first, you know, because it can be very scary to have to look at yourself and go, you know what, you know, I really and not deserving of this praise, you know, or, or I'm, I really haven't done anything yet, you know, at least in my case, when I came into the practice, you know, the practice, I was in a real bad place psychologically and emotionally, and um, and I was hell-bent on blaming everybody else but myself and not taking responsibility, and, and if you heard, and I know you know my story, and we might touch on that in a second, but some people... And many people in my circle would validate that story, you know, because the circumstances were, you know, so crazy and I did, you know, get to experience some crazy situations. But what yoga, like you said, as a tool did for me was it it revealed that if I could manage my body in a certain way, if I could manage my breathing in a certain way, it gave me distance between my thought and my emotion, which allowed me to switch from the state of like compulsive reaction to a state of conscious response to my life, and, and that really gave me the opportunity to no longer be a slave to situation, you know, but I could really kind of take, take any situation, however beautiful or however ugly, and and make it, you know, the best that it could possibly be, you know, and use it for my own transformation.
0: Exactly. No, I mean, again, you touched on on a few aspects, both from a personal side. And yes, I will ask you about your personal story because now I came out and we'll get to that in a second. But again, being able to, for me to sit back and create the possibility and ask a question that would bring up the ability to articulate the scope of what yoga can really provide through looking at what challenges us as teachers face. And you know... Us as teachers, you know. I mean, my opinion is we grow through teaching, but we grew first through learning about the practice. And what you said about Absolutely. your your capacity of seeing what Patanjali points out that yoga chitta vritti nirodha yoga is the calming of the turning of the mind and the heart. And certainly, it's just surprising that so often not sentence from him seems to be missing in the yoga practitioner world and devoid into the exercise experience, which is totally fine, because if we look at Geshe Michael Roche, who is just trying to point out, like at least we're doing it. So I'd much rather you yeah. do yoga poses, and then eventually, especially in today's internet world, you hopefully one day might touch on really. Nonetheless, I've discovered that Maybe we need a little help, and hence this podcast and yes, yoga would bring you to a space if you practice to then must have to deal with what goes on inside that brain of yours, what goes on inside the heart of yours, and what exactly you're doing with those circumstances to clean out the darkness in you, and that's the darkness that we all have and if we weren't dark then then we'd have people just flock to us like. That like Krishna Das's teacher, Karuli Baba, who was not dark and was just simply a radiant light, if we use Krishna Das's words about and his experience with his teacher as being just the sunlight, and it would be great if those kind of people emanated around the world a lot more. But that just it means that us as yoga teachers have to try to do that for the world.
1: You know, I, I I love that you brought up mean because Nee was such a big inspiration for me, and I, I think actually I've, I've really drawn a lot from many different you know great gurus and sages. You know, like Sri Maa was a big one. But as you were as you were saying that and that the Dalai there it reminded me of that parable in the Bible where there's the adulteress and the people have the stones in their hands and they're you know they're wanting to to stone her and Jesus steps in front of her and like you know he was. And I couldn't push through this a little bit because I'm not actually well versed in many aspects of the Bible, but this is one that I've I've heard said, you know, throughout my life. And he writes in the sand or maybe he says he who is without sin may cast the first stone and then he walks off. And and what I what yoga did too, I think it, it gave me a lens when I looked at that to realize what he was saying there by by walking off was, I too have sinned You know. So here is this great example of a beautiful being, somebody whom we who has inspired uh what you know at least you know millions of people across the world throughout centuries to try to pursue some semblance of greater freedom, greater love and joy in their life and I think that that like what he would say, if we're going to quote him again is that the kingdom of of heaven is within us, and if we can overcome. Our tendencies as he overcomes, maybe we can have a world where there are more Krishnas, there are more, there are more mean Karoli Baba. Could you imagine if mean Karoli Baba was like, you know, bagging your groceries, or if, or, or if a Jesus picked up your garbage, or you know, like we need more Krishnas, we need more Buddhas. You know what I'm saying? I do, and that's what
0: I love about okay. Maharaji. We'll use we'll use the term that is devotees use, because Maharazi would just say. Hanuman, Krishna, Jesus, all same because he recognized that these individuals lived to try to present a truth that perhaps got a little muddled through the years as much as sadly it seems that somehow yoga either gets marginalized for asana stretching Mm experiences or marginalized in other directions, cultish wise But again, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just trying to be realistic so that we are allowed to look at things as they are. In a world where I got like an idol, and I got Simon Cowell, who is easily and can point out that just because the rest of you think that this singer is singing so great, they're not great, and so, we don't we seem to somehow think that it's it's not okay to call out what internally we realize is not really right. But somehow well you're the yoga teacher, so I don't really want to say anything. Mhm.
1: Well, I think it's happened because many people out of desperation have been seeking a, a great degree of solace and I I I feel like a lot of people become yoga teachers they're very well-intended, you know, the intention as well. They want to help people, but not, the underlying desire there can be a deep sense of incompleteness, and, and it can be a very powerful feeling to stand in front of a room and command the attention of people, even if it's just two or three, you know? And, uh, and I, I feel like when I look at a lot of Instagram, you know, posts, and as I observe the yoga community, you know, you see a lot of, uh, half naked photos and, and, you know, very, very clear, very clearly the use of, of sexuality to, to fuel a money-making machine. You know, you can, you can definitely sense that there's less yoga and more marketing being sort of delivered in those moments. And I think what the practice was always meant to do, or what it at least did for me was it removed this veil of uh, illusion that I, that I had where I thought that I was this like individual entity separate from creation and that I, my actions didn't have consequences on the level that I thought, or, or excuse me, my actions had minor consequences. And, and I think what it made me realize was that I'm integrated all the time. Like after all, you know, the the trees are exhaling right now what I'm inhaling, you know, Uh, The the very atmospheric pressure is is keeping me uh, capable of sustaining my physicality. I mean, the way that my inner ears work, you know, to keep me able to orient myself in three-dimensional space as we sort of glide through infinite space on this gigantic organic spaceship, you know, that's hurtling through space at tens of thousands of miles an hour, circling a gigantic nuclear explosion. I mean, it's all bonkers, you know? Right. So... Like that, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, when you're so consumed with the muddled minds, with this murky mind, you don't ever have time to sit back and go, you know what? Like that plant is helping me to live. If I if I didn't have that plant, I couldn't be here. Like I'm, my physicality is tethered to that thing. And that kind of realization and that sense of integration really begins to make me realize that I was. Never incomplete, you know, as a being, as a as life. As life, I was never incomplete, and therefore I didn't have anything to fill. And all this attempts of, you know, filling, you know, the, the hole that I was feeling in my heart and in my mind essentially, it would never work. You know, it was never going to work. I was never going to be able to, you know, lift enough weights. So I never I would have never been able to win enough contests or have enough money. You know, it would just kind of cycle its way from one thing to the next. And, you know, finding something much deeper through the tools of yoga, it, it really gave me the freedom and to transcend things like what I liked and what I didn't like so that I was willing to do what was needed and like you said, able to see things as they are versus pretending and you know, essentially lying to myself about the way things work. Because I made this realization, maybe you've had something similar. You know, I often realize, like, I look at sometimes people when they've had something really traumatic happen to them, like, you know, God forbid this has happened to any of the listeners, and know that I'm going to use this example with the utmost empathy and the utmost understanding. But if somebody experiences a tragic situation such as rape or something... Horrific along those lines. Then, and if you ask them, you know, like, hey, is, is, is everything okay? What's the matter? You know, most typically they're going to respond, oh, you know, everything's fine. I'm I'm okay. And they're not quick to sort of, you know, share what's going on. And we'll often downplay in our minds. We'll kind of downplay the severity of certain situations, and then we'll we'll exaggerate other situations to fit a narrative, maybe to gain the, the agulation or the empathies or the sympathies of other people. And as we continue to do that, I I think of examples, like, let's say you're running late to work, you know, and you get to work and your boss is like, why are you late? And you're like, Oh my God, you won't even believe the amount of traffic that was on the interstate. It was just backed up for miles. And it might've been just like a little,
2: (laughs) you know, just like,
1: just like a little tiny bit of traffic, but you know, you, you wanted to have the sympathy so that you, you know, you weren't, gonna get in trouble or or, you know, lose the the love or whatever of your boss or your partner or whatever. So we kind of upplay situations that aren't necessarily requiring that that exaggeration and we downplay situations that we maybe really need to honestly look at and go, hey, this is this is really a problem and we really should address this with the utmost of compassion and and fierceness of conviction. And because it feels like the longer we do that, or at least the longer I did that when I was a younger man, the, the harder it became for me to understand what was real and what was not real. I started to realize that I was like living in this very weird world where I had been distorting my perception so much that I started to not even trust my own thoughts for a little bit, you know, from like 17, 18, 19. Let's, let's have you hear um, a little bit
0: about the fact that you have a background that gives you a reason to be able to communicate like this. I don't want to say the background, oh. I want to share a little bit now. I mean because in a sense yeah, usually well, I also ask I also ask how people handle these challenges that they face. So I believe that we've already covered how you handle these challenges that you see um that we just described, talked about. And so and so I Yeah Um, I'd love for you to kind of point out uh, to the listeners what also really got you from where you started and what really emphasized, because you have a background that is sad. I'm going to use that word.
1: Yes. Yeah, I I, I do, you know, and my my parents were both very young parents, and they're both extremely beautiful in, in so many ways, and I'm eternally grateful for everything that is happened you know now standing on the other side of it but my mother got pregnant when she was 15 and um, you know a child having a child is usually a recipe for disaster and you know she grew up with a mother who had been sort of given some advice that she needed to treat my mother like a roommate and not like a daughter and that that piece of advice coupled with uh, a father who' you know, took off to a whole other state. He was a Vietnam veteran, United States Marine. And, you know, he had some, some issues coming back from Vietnam. And before she could even remember, he kind of split town. And so she was left feeling very, very unloved and, and had a, a lot of things, a lot of thoughts and emotions that she never got an opportunity to work through because at 15 years old, she was having a child. And so naturally like we all, she started trying to seek out remedies for, for how to do this, you know, and this is the 70s and the 80s, and, and you know, from what I've gathered by, you know, asking my aunt, my aunts and uncles and, and family members and relatives and having very honest conversations with them over the years is that it started with simple things like alcohol and marijuana uh, to try to cope with her emotions and, and her thoughts, and then when those things weren't working, it turned into – prescription medications such as Xanax, Prozac, you know, all sorts of different types of anti-anxiety medications and depression medications. And then when those things didn't work, and and unfortunately, you know, like once the doctors prescribed something, those medications are extremely addictive. You know, her system had built up a dependency on those pills, and so then she went searching for those pills, and, you know, uh, she went searching, you know, drug houses, and, and unfortunately, pretty much everybody in my family they all use uh heavy substance you know and I'm not you know kind of talking light stuff we're talking like heroin cocaine methamphetamines you know the really really hard stuff and so you know she went to one of my aunts because she knew she could you know get some pills and and pretty soon, though, you find out that buying you know prescription pills on the street is extremely expensive. And and so you know, at about 19 and 20 years old, she was introduced to methamphetamine by one of my aunts. And uh, and ever since then, it's had a massive grip on her life. And um, and it's it pretty much destroyed, um, you know, it my entire family. I mean, I don't have a single aunt or uncle who does not use or is not addicted to some type of substance. And uh, and so I've I've got to watch from, you know, a very first hand real world experience what it's like to live in great poverty, what it's like to be a recipient of, you know, uh, government services and welfare and, and being on the side of the ship where you gotta rock to collect cans to get food and and being the kid who got his ass every day for, you know, not having the cool shoes and, and, and living in the hood where it's this constant kind of you know, dog-eat-dog dog world, you know, and, you, and you, see a lot, you see a lot of crazy stuff there. You know, it wasn't anything unusual for me to see, you know, drug dealers or, you know, various types of, you know, mischief activity, you know, burglary, armed robbery, assault, you know, all kinds of stuff uh, as people are just trying to survive in those situations. And And I think as I look back on it, Interestingly enough, yoga had always kind of been presenting itself to me. As I look in hindsight now, even as early as as the third grade, I I remember drawing yoga-related pictures in, in school projects and stuff. And so I remember distinctly, even as a very, very small boy, recognizing that there was something very not right about the circumstances that I was in, and that kept me kind of at a at an interesting distance from those circumstances, but you can't kind of grow up in those situations without them having residue on you.
2: That's so close.
1: throughout my throughout my teenage years, you know, I was real I was real lost. And the most fundamental relationship that, you know, many of well all of us men have is, is the one that we have to our mother. After all, her very wound is what nurtured us and, and allowed the ambiance of that womb is what allowed our bodies to take root. And so, you know, the the kind of dichotomy of relationship that I had with my mother where, you know, on one hand, as the eldest of two boys, I needed to be able to be the man of the house, her savior, you know, and then on the other hand, I needed to be her punching bag and somebody whom she could take advantage of and use like another resource. And, and if any of your listeners ever know anybody who's used anything hard like heroin and methamphetamines, when it gets real bad, especially like with my mother where, you know, she uh, has injected or she's used, you know, intravenous usage, uh, I mean, they can, the drug literally becomes a type of demonic possession where the person who you once knew, they're, they're literally gone in this, this evil uh, demon takes them over completely, and it's such a it's, it's an incredibly confusing time because you know imagine being I remember being thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen and seeing my other friends struggle with just like puberty you know what I'm saying right like, right right they go from not they go from not caring about body parts to all of a sudden you know all the struggles that come along at the end of those ages and, and I was going through all those same things too but on top of that you know. I, I had all these things going on
0: at home, you know. Or with my So family. let me ask so, you in this ahead. environment that is that that yes, all the listeners can totally now relate because of the way you described it, which was so non judgmental, which was again an attribute of the beauty of either your practice or just like you said, you were able to be even at a young age, somehow at a slight distance. But you go from this environment that has this intensity of addictive and and challenging because I'm just trying to survive, and then yet you find this other path. So how did you even find this other path, and what age was that? Well, you
1: know, I found this other path because I had hit a, a literal bottom for myself. I had been... Nope at what age? I had been in uh 19. I would have been 19 when the bottom really like when the bottom fell out and I had really come to this very very depressed place in my I mean I was so consumed. I mean my I didn't have any physical addictions to say like any type of substance or anything but mm-hmm. the only way that I had ever learned how to like make anything happen in my life especially growing up in the hood and then in these terrible situations was was to be aggressive or angry and so that that anger and the intensity of anger became very 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 addictive and and the thing with anger is is that you're going momentarily insane anytime you're angry you know and and i think that i just went kind of insane too much and i crossed the line that that honestly i i know that i could not have gotten back to gotten back from on my own i don't since that I actually did anything myself that led me to yoga and my experience, it feels like a type of divine grace because I was suicidal. I was living, you know, with a friend of mine, uh, after, and for about a, a two year period from like 19, uh, I guess a year and a half, from like 19 to 20 and a half, I was just living in this dark, dark place This, you know, sort of like rage fueled, <laughs> numb zone just avoiding everything about my life. And I was living with a friend and, uh, you know, and I had a 45 caliber pistol and I was like considering killing myself on numerous times, but I had a a younger brother. And the only reason I didn't kill myself was because I thought that it was too selfish that, you know, what would that do to him? I cared more about his life than my own at the time. And one time, maybe two days after this, you know, I had been up all night, just, you know, kind of in my own story, I, I went outside to sit on this porch in this house that I was living at inside of the hood, and, and mind you, like, I watched, you know, six or seven people get murdered on this block in the time period that I had lived there, and I'm sitting on this porch, and I, and I remember distinctly having my head slumped over, and I just said to myself, you know what, man, like, you're already willing to die, you know, you're already willing to die. Why not be willing to die? for your joy, like, figure out what the fuck you're doing wrong and change it, because you can't live like this anymore, and and you you got to do something, you know, and, you know, just killing yourself, and I had always been very much a martial artist, and you could say kind of a warrior at spirit, and I felt as though if I was going to go down, I was going to at least go out on my shield, you know, like the Spartans would say.
0: Right, or you're going to go out like a and samurai.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was like, you know, if I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna at least go out swinging and trying to do everything that I can. And it was at that point I kind of just surrendered everything that I knew to something greater than myself. And I and I at the time I was definitely I, I don't know what it is. I don't. I can't say what it is because I don't really know. I just know that I surrendered. And what I know came about from that was I started seeing yoga was being thrust into my face in this like vast way. And I, but because anger was my go-to emotion, I saw these women, you know, oftentimes with like fake breasts and tight clothes and all this stuff. And I, and I would think to myself because I would see these women in the gym or wherever, And I was very much uh, into exercise. I've always been exercising and very much training my body for as long as I can remember. Because my dad was a super athlete before he had a car accident that gave him a permanent brain injury that left him kind of mentally younger than me. But, um, I was, I would watch these women and I would think, you know, it's real easy to be happy when you get to go to the gym day and, you know, stretch your body and you have a husband who pays for your beautiful Mercedes and you don't have to,
2: you know, you don't have to
1: worry about whether or not you're going to eat in the next three days or if you're going to get fucking shot walking down the block, you know, or whatever it may be. And, and, And that was just ignorant thinking in general, you know, but because I had never been exposed to that world, it was just me creating stories in my mind based upon the images that I had seen. And so I was so angry and sort of jealous and envious of their happiness and and envious of the life that they were having. And I thought, you know, out of, you could say, my rebelliousness, I was going to go into this yoga class and kind of prove all of these you know, this is what I said to myself. I was like, I'm gonna go prove these fucking idiots wrong.
2: You know, like this.
1: You know, I was like, this shit ain't gonna work for me. You know, like my problems are way too real. <laughs> like, That's what I thought. I was like, this, I was like, listen here, ain't no stretching gonna fucking solve this shit. And I, I did, I did this class, man. And I swear to God, I got into that classroom, and and it was an awesome, a big practice. And so I'm always grateful for asana-based practices because it was what I came into. And I knew I needed to have something in that beginning that connected with my body because it was where I was at psychologically and emotionally. And, And I remember having this real experience of having my body not feel right. It was incredibly strong and had incredible endurance, but it was so incredibly stiff at the same time. And I saw these like graceful, beautiful women just and men, and this was what was interesting to me too, because the class that I went to had had uh, equal portions of men and women, and they were kind of moving so effortlessly and with such grace that I knew something was wrong with my body. That was the initial, the the first thing that I had within about five minutes of that class. But then they laid us down at the end of the class, and. I had this five-minute period, maybe, where I didn't feel anything at all, Gabriel. I mean, I didn't feel anything at all. And I gotta tell you, I know when I say that story sometimes to other people, it feels so anticlimactic. But to be free from from every bit of my brain, to be free from joy, free from free from pain, just just free, just totally empty and void of any anything, anything there. It, I I don't even know how it happened, and to me, it still seems kind of ludicrous that it, it might have happened so quickly to me in such a profound way, but it, I was literally from that moment on, I was I was determined to figure out what this was, what this yoga stuff was about, and how I could keep using these tools to, to access that space again, and since I'd had so much experience with martial arts and martial arts lineages, I really began to tra- track down and, and, you know, hunt for good teachers, and that was kind of my next step. I just really kind of dove headfirst into that world. And and I've
0: been going on that journey ever since. Wow, that's awesome, man. That's beautiful. I mean, I, again, you you talk a little bit like, I mean, Bruce Lee had a similar experience since he brought up the martial arts. And at some point, Bruce recognizes that there's a depth underneath the practices, the, the physical practices that he's been doing. And then he recognizes, and if no one, if the listeners are not really familiar with Bruce Lee, well, Bruce Lee is just an incredible phenomenon force of inspiration in the martial arts, not just because of his ability to demonstrate through his physicality, but like martial arts, most people only see that part of him.
2: But Bruce,
0: Bruce kind of went through a similar transformation than what you just said, when he discovered the principles of Zen. And to use Zen meditation to call something um, any other type of style, brings us back to Bruce who, once he discovered that as essence of meditation and that his practices really helped him to come to a place where he could create a centered mind. I mean, I mean he learned what happens when a centered mind then he dropped this whole idea that there's styles and one did not want to talk about styles anymore and recognize what, again, I'm going to use Maharaji's words, there are five fingers but there's only one hand. There are different ways <laughs> to get to where you want to get to, but at the end, if you really follow the path, you're going to get there. So I'd love to know what it is that uh, is your path these days. What is your, What would you consider your practice these days?
1: Well, you know, I, I do I do a physical asana-based practice uh, every day in combination with a Non-physical kriya that I was initiated into <laughs> by Sadhguru Jagadguru Vasudev called Shambhavi Mahamudra, mm-hmm. and um, so I do my initial asana practice, which is something of my, you know, of my own creation. I, you know, it, you know, you could say it's a stronger vinyasa inspired, but it's it's definitely not a stronger vinyasa, and and many people probably wouldn't even be able to recognize it. But you know, very. Some some movements are similar, some movements are vastly different, and, and I do um, what's called a mandala, you know, a mandala pile of practice where, you know, I'm moving in all sorts of uh, different turns and directions. I use a, a free space mat. I don't use a single mat, and, um, and I do that in the morning, uh, and then I usually do the shambhavi, and then I do a shambhavi later on in the afternoon, and then a lot of times I'll have an extra little bit of my day, and I'll do, you know... Uh, uh, an alternative kriya or some pranayama whenever I have an opportunity. And then on top of that, I still am... I'm, I'm even more heavy into the martial arts now um, than I think I've ever been in my whole life. And the reason for that is is because I think that I find that martial artists are more in line with yogis than the yogis that I encounter, are off yogis in parentheses. <laughs> no, I, <got laughs> you know, I agree. And so,
0: I mean, on that one level, I mean as much as it might be comic and and in some people's eyes childish, but so no offense to any listeners or anyone who thinks that, but Kangsu Panda offers a wealth of insight about what yoga really is than most yoga classes.
1: Yeah, uh, And you know, there's just something about, you know, what you really learn about yourself. You know, my main art form that I practice right now is jujitsu. And uh, as a martial art anyways, and, and when you're, you know, with another person, you're activating all of these different marma points, you know, like in you know, Ayurveda. So you have this constant activation of marma points in combination with conscious movement and breathing all of the time. so very, you know, very quickly I enter a state of dhyana almost within minutes of beginning a role, and I'll spend an hour to 90 minutes in, in total absorption and meditation and total self-reflection. And you you can really learn a lot about yourself when you know you're facing somebody who wants to you know choke you unconscious.
0: <laughs> oh, by far! I mean, one of my best friends. I mean, if we if we I mean, martial arts is an evolution of yoga, but martial arts at least has a consequence where a yoga practitioner doesn't at the moment in today's world. And if we if we were to akin a yoga practitioner then it would be what my best friend would like to say. It's like, well, you just know enough Kung Fu to get your ass kicked. And,
1: <laughs> yes. 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 and
0: that's, that's, no, that's not a and good that's... way to, to go into a Kung Fu experience and that's why I love having these podcasts and hopefully my listeners are benefiting because yoga offers so much more than just this um, minimalized experience of stretching. <laughs> And if you have discovered something deeper in your Shavasana, your last posture, like you said, in your first class, then that would have automatically triggered a desire to go deeper and then discover that there's something deeper. And that's a tribute also to the teacher. So I'd love to ask you, um, what kind of tips would you have for yoga teachers to be able to become more authentic, more deeper in this world of... Um, of just multiple yoga teach trainings, of uh, people. Yeah, about. I think
1: I think the best thing, or the number one tip that I I could give is, is you can't teach something that you don't do. You know, so it's like you, if you're not practicing, if you, you know, if you don't have a a practice that you do regularly, I would I would encourage them to question why they're teaching. You know, it's very you know, from my experience, its irresponsible and dangerous to teach something that you that you really don't have experience with and and I would say you know, teach in your lane you know if if you've never done you know a handstand scorpion, there's no necessity for you to teach that to somebody else if you have no idea what that position feels like you know there's nothing wrong with teaching a really great down dog if you know that position just. Meet yourself where you, as, and I'm going to, you know, kind of paraphrase Krishnamacharya a little bit because he always encouraged his teachers to meet his students where they were, and I would say meet yourself where you are, you know. Exactly. And you know, don't expect yourself to to need to be uh, a Ramana Maharishi tomorrow. You know, don't expect yourself to to need to be a Gabriel Azule today. You know, know that it's a can, it's a forever happening. It's a constant becoming and I think from my personal my personal path, I would encourage people to not box themselves in to any sort of set style or, or, or path, but to explore all styles and all paths and, and to treat them like beautiful gardens, full of wonderful flowers that they can dance through. And that I would encourage them to pick as many flowers from those gardens that they like and create a beautiful garland with it and wear it all, you know, if I could use kind of a metaphor. You no, know, I love that metaphor, because I know
0: taken, it's a great metaphor. I,
1: I've personally taken, you know, beautiful things, I've taken great things from Patavi, I've taken great things from, uh,
2: BKS and,
1: uh I've taken great things from Neem Karoli Baba, Paramahantani Yogananda, Srimad Deshwa. you know, all these amazing things and, and modern teachers too, Greg R. you know, uh, you for example, uh, Andre Lapa, um, I mean, gosh, the list is so it's so extensive that I could, you know, fill probably a whole podcast of just people who I, I really honestly need to thank and contribute and give them recognition for their contributions to my life, you know? And so I think what I try to do personally is to not pretend that yoga mind by any stretch of the imagination. You know, yoga was here long before me, and it'll be here long after me. I think what I'm trying to do, and, and maybe this will inspire other people, is I'm just trying to be a good steward, you know, You know, I'm just trying to be a great steward and just allow it to pass from me to the next generation uh, with as much clarity as I could possibly give it and and to allow the cards to fall where they may, but to keep trying to strive each day to, to be honest and to self-audit myself regularly and, and make sure that I am moving on the path myself.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. That's incredible. So what do you think those kind of... Challenges affect yoga students, in your opinion. What kind of what kind of challenges do you see happening to yoga students today?
1: Well, I see a lot of yoga students uh, are challenged by, are are plagued with injury. You know, I think that the oftentimes the two hundred hour, three hundred hour, or gosh, even you know five hundred hour teacher trainings do not leave practitioners with nearly enough experience to teach some of the complex, complicated asanas that are being delivered. And I don't think people often understand the anatomy, or or, uh, to use Krishnamacharya's word, the the vinyasa krama of how to, like, sequence things intelligently, how to move the body in a way that prepares the body for another movement. They just look at movements and they'll place positions before other positions that that really increase the risk of injury exponentially. And I I think that we have given yoga teachers in many ways way way too much credence and too much power, you know? And I think that there's a, an awful lot of irresponsibility with that power, and and I think that we're seeing a lot of bodily injuries that are, are permanently disabling, meniscal injuries, you know, ACL, LCL, MCL injuries, uh, amongst others, ruptured discs, you know. And
0: I do know, and yes, there, you know. So it's nice to hear that, others you know, say it as opposed to me saying it and then feeling like I'm trying to be negative and you're not in in this way there's no negativity this is just the capacity of being able to call out a reality that we see as teachers that's it and then being able to
1: do yoga the way I used to watch a lot of people lift weights in the gym like they're they're doing yoga not to get better but they're doing yoga to kind of show off does that make sense
0: yes not not by far true
1: of everybody
2: but no 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 this
0: is not this is we want to be able to create a situation that both the listeners, students, and teachers, and then non-yogis, uh, non-yoga practitioners, I don't want to make it like yogi, yogis and yoginis, but the ability to put out the conversation. These podcasts for me is to be able to bring out the light conversation that, in my opinion, just doesn't happen, like what you said.
1: Oh, yeah. I see
0: too many and injuries. And I see too many Students coming out, and I see too many people trying to somehow want to make yoga their own, and it's like, but yoga's old. Why does it need to be yours? I mean, yeah. Bikram, for instance, is. I mean, I'm going to take a person who is uh, controversial as a human being, and I have. I'm not going to talk about him as a person, but the Bikram practice doesn't belong to Bikram. Was handed to him by Vishnu who was an intelligent powerful force, not only was he the brother of Paramahansa Yogananda but he was a world champion, he was a healer and he gave Bikram a set of poses that healed Bikram and then they took that set of poses and they healed people in Calcutta. Then he sends Bikram to teach the same poses to the west to heal their bodies and so in a sense regardless of what the unfortunate and one of the reasons I I talked to male teachers is because of the consequences of what Bikram, as a male teacher, about what the person, not the practice, the person has created, but the practice is only 26 simple poses. You don't need to go make stuff complicated. And I teach from a point of view, I'd like for you, in terms of the asana practice, to have an asana practice that's preventative maintenance. If I'm going to do asana, then let me be healthy. What's the point of being healthy though, so I can discover something new? It reminds me of absolutely tim Tim Miller on his blog, he simply says, "I teach the practice so that you can practice correctly, and when your practice is correct, the practice becomes the teacher
1: I, I couldn't- i mean that's been my personal experience and i you know to parlay what you said you know, complexity doesn't always mean better. <laughs> you know, no, exactly. Like, I, I think of medication, you know, like the the idea of the minimum effective dose of something, you know, too much of something can become poisonous. Correct. You know? And exactly. so, uh, it, it, and there are many, like you said, you, you did that beautiful one with the, the hand. There are many pathways to do that. And, um, but yeah, I think there there are some really great continued conversations and, um I Man, I really feel like we just kind of got, you know, going here. Um, but I'm, I'm just showing up to my actual, my jiu-jitsu practice here, Gabriel.
0: No, no, I know you got to go. And, uh, I mean,
1: if I could yeah. take two
0: seconds and just kind of get three tips that you have for yoga teachers or in yoga students. Just three tips that you would suggest three that they can go and expand in their own practice practices.
1: Okay, so for teachers, you know, I would say three tips would be Know yourself, know others, you know, both in your body, in your heart, and in your mind. The more that you know about you, the more you'll be able to know somebody else. Two, err on the side of caution, you know, when when approaching a practice. You know, it's easy to to sort of project your own ambition off onto the students, and, and we must meet our students where they are and meet ourselves where we are. And three, continue to educate yourself. Never stop learning. You know, go to new seminars. Go, you know, and if, and if you see something that you don't like or you don't agree with, well, at least now you learned what you don't want to do, you know, as much as you've learned what you do want to do or how you want to apply those techniques uh, in your classroom. For practitioners, I would say patience. You know, be patient with yourself. Try not to rush the process. The body the is not, you know, it's not changeable from one day to the next. It's it's product of consistency. Um, have, have empathy and understanding for yourself as you move along that path and forgiveness uh, for any falling that you have. Um, I would say, um, create an atmosphere of discipline and remove temptation, remove anything that tempts you to avoid your practice, you know. So, you know, if you know that you struggle to get up in the morning, you know, Don't go out that night with your friends and have a couple of shots, you know, at sushi. You know, make wise decisions beforehand so that you're not met with greater obstacles when it comes time to make it to the mat. And um, then, I guess the last thing I would say to students is, is unfortunately in this current yoga climate, I would say protect yourself. You know, know that you know you you should listen to your body and as educated as some of these amazing teachers are, you still want to have your body be your responsibility and to not just completely turn it over to another person so that hopefully you can avoid maybe any potential risk of injury that might occur in the future.
0: Yep. No one knows your body
1: better than you
0: and the whole point of yoga is hopefully to help you discover yourself on a deeper level. I'm going to use one word you used, guru. At the end in English, it's spelled G U R U. A real guru is only trying to help you discover yourself, and Matthew, I know you got to run. So I'm going to let the, the listeners see your information on the bottom. Matthew teaches out of Des Moines, Iowa, and so you can, if you're there, please visit him, but his information is going to be down there. You're going to follow him on his Instagram. We're going to let Matthew go into his practice. As you heard, Matthew takes his practice seriously, his teaching seriously, I'm so grateful that Matthew gave me some of your time because I'm super busy and I'm so excited for the fact that you're busy in the realm of what you're doing. And I've been there, I've seen it, and I know that you're still lives. And I'm just beyond grateful to have allowed myself to hear your story and so happy for the listeners because I know they've gained a tremendous amount of value. So, and let, oh, let, so I'll, much, let, I'll leave you with your last comment. And then you can say bye because I know you're rushing into your class and you're already late as it is.
1: I would say my last comment is: is you owe it to self to switch from the pursuit of happiness to the expression of joy. Be joyfully expressive. It's you know happiness isn't the pinnacle of life; it's the foundation. And I and I and I it is my wish and my blessing to you that that you make this happen for yourself.
0: I have nothing more to add to that, but I'm gonna just leave it at that. Matthew, you have an awesome awesome afternoon. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, brother. I, I miss you, Gabriel. I can't wait to see you, brother.
0: Likewise.
2: Take care, buddy. Have a good one. Bye.